Well, I have the privilege of leading you in worship and preaching to you once again this morning. So uh, in John Bunyan's classic book, The Pilgrim's Progress, have any of you guys read that book before? Yeah, a few of us. Well, there's a part in the book where the main character, Christian, and his companion, Hopeful, turn aside from the true way, the true path, which was leading to the celestial city, and they take a different path, which seemed to be headed in the same direction and which appeared to be an easier road to travel. But this other path eventually leads Christian and Hopeful way off course and into a bit of trouble when they find themselves being captured by a giant named Despair and taken to Doubting Castle where they're thrown into a dark and nasty dungeon and are starved and are beaten mercilessly and are encouraged to kill themselves. And I don't know about you, but I find Bunyan's personification of despair to be a cruel giant and doubt to be his castle prison illuminating and absolutely true to my own experience because in my own experience, Despair and doubt can absolutely feel like tormenting and inescapable foes. And this morning, as we come to the book of the prophet Malachi, which continues this post-exilic, after-exile story of the Judeans, um, which we've been tracing through Haggai and Zechariah, this morning in uh, in Malachi, we see a people who are similarly despairing of life and imprisoned by doubt. And here's why. In the books of Haggai and Zechariah, we saw all these wonderful prophecies, remember, of, of the ways that this future restoration and blessing and fullness and prosperity and deliverance would come to the people of God. And Haggai and Zechariah prophesied around 520 BC. Well, then in 516 BC, four years later, the Judeans finished rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem and they stood there waiting. Okay, Lord, we're ready for that paradise restoration you promised. Okay, Lord, we're ready for those horn crushing craftsmen you promised. Okay, Lord, we're ready for the new Jerusalem. We're ready for that mighty menorah oil. We're ready for those charging chariots. But then the years began to tick by and none of those promises seemed to materialize. And then the land began to suffer from drought and crop failure and pestilence and God seemed to be silent. And again, the Judeans began to doubt in the promises of God. But then a few decades later in the mid-400s BC, God finally sent another prophet to his people, the prophet Malachi, who is the final prophet of the Old Testament. And through the prophet Malachi, God confronts his people over six things he has against them. And those six things, which we're gonna be looking at over the next six sermons, are their doubting of God's love, their begrudgery in God's worship, their apathy toward God's law, their transgression of God's covenant, their stinginess in God's offering, and their grumbling 
at God's justice. And I like what the commentary notes in my ESV study, study Bible call this. They call this Malachi's six-fold wake-up call to renewed covenant fidelity. And so this morning, we begin with the first wake-up call to the Judeans doubting of God's love. But before we read the passage, let me pray for us. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, open our ears this morning to hear your spirit's voice and move in our hearts in such a way that we might run after your beckoning call into your arms of love this morning. For your glory alone, amen. All right, if you brought a Bible with you, go ahead and turn in it to the Old Testament book of Malachi. Uh, It is the final minor prophet, the final book of the Old Testament, so it's right before Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, the book of Malachi, and we'll read verses one through five of chapter one. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So here, after the introduction in verse one, we see God's love declared, verse 2a. God's love debated, verse 2b. And God's love defended, verse 2c through five. Again, that's God's love declared, God's love debated, and finally, God's love Defended. So first we see God's love declared. Verse 2a, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now this is remarkable. It's remarkable that the very first thing God says to his doubting, apathetic, transgressing, stingy, and grumbling people is, I have loved you. And this tells us at least two things about God two really important things. The first is that God in his wisdom knows what we need to hear when we need to hear it. And what I mean by that is this. Sometimes we need a hard word. We need a kick in the pants. We need to be confronted in our sin directly and emphatically in order to forcefully cut off the legs of arrogance and autonomy and narcissism beneath us, amen? And we've seen some examples of this, this hard word giving in the other minor prophets where the very first thing God has for his people are very confrontational and cutting words. 
But at other times, what we really need to hear are tender words. We need a fresh reminder of God's grace and mercy. We need to be wrapped up in God's arms of love in order to gently melt our hearts over the grievousness and severity of our sin, right? And those are the kinds of words God has for us this morning. Tender words intended to melt our hearts. I have loved you. And the second thing this reveals to us about God is that God's disposition toward his people is always one of love. In other words, in our trusting and in our doubting, and in our delighting and in our begrudgery, and in our passion and in our apathy, and in our obeying and in our transgressing, and in our generosity and in our stinginess, and in our praising and in our grumbling, God looks upon his people with love. And this can be hard for us to get our minds around, right? Because there are no other relationships in our lives where we are loved quite like this. Because unlike our love, God's love is perfect and never intermingled with sin. And unlike our love, God's love never changes, never fades, never grows cold. And, and that's because God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Love is in his nature. It's a part of who he is and so much so that were his love to disappear, he would disappear. So the book of Malachi in this first wake-up call begins with God's love declared. I have loved you, says the Lord. But then, instead of hearts melting and the people repenting, we see God's love debated, verse 2b. But you say, how have you loved us? So Malachi's prophecy is being presented as a uh, back and forth conversation between God and his people. And right after God speaks those tender words, I have loved you, the people immediately challenge him to prove it. Oh yeah? How have you loved us? And of course the irony here is that (laughs) these people who are cross-examining God about his love for them are the very ones whose love is nowhere to be found. And in this response, which effectively contradicts the love God just declared, I immediately hear echoes of the serpent in the Garden of Eden who said to Eve, did God really say? I hear that same serpentine, contradictory attitude. And it's obvious that the Judeans are unable to see the love of God because they're coming to God with their preconceived ideas about what that would look like if he really loved them, right? They're thinking, if God really loved us, this would be the case in our lives, and that would be the case in our lives, and so on and so forth but because their preconceived ideas about God's love haven't been realized, they've imprisoned themselves in a dark and nasty dungeon of doubt. And how does God respond to this 
finger pointing, contradicting, doubting people? Well, he responds in a way that we probably never would have expected. Verse 2c through 3a. This is God's defense, his glorious defense of his love for his people. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I'm guessing that these are probably not words you've heard in a worship song on the radio, right? Because we're not accustomed to talking about the love of God quite in these terms. But this is how God chooses to defend his love for his people. And here's why. To understand why, we have to go all the way back through the Old Testament to the book of Genesis, where we find the curious story of two twins born to Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau. And what happens is that Esau is born first, and in this patriarchal society, it was a really big deal to be a firstborn son because the firstborn son would become the head of the family and would receive a double portion, twice as much of the family inheritance when the parents died. And so in many ways, Esau, the firstborn son, was slated to be the next great patriarch. But as God often does, he reverses human expectations and, and chooses to show special favor to Jacob and to carry out his plan of redemption which began with Abraham and came down through Isaac, now through Jacob and not Esau. And Jacob's descendants become known as the Israelites and their nation was Israel and then later after split, it became Israel and Judah and they were God's chosen people. And Esau's descendants became known as the Edomites and their nation was Edom and they were not God's people and they didn't want to be. And there are two other places in the Bible outside of Genesis which uh, allude to this story. One is here in Malachi chapter one and the other is in Romans chapter nine. And in Romans chapter nine, the Apostle Paul is addressing the fact that many of the Jews, the Israelites, the Judeans, many of the Jews, God's chosen people, had failed to see Jesus as the promised Messiah. And he says this in verses six through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are spiritual children of Abraham because they are his physical offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He's quoting Genesis 21:12, where God was sovereignly choosing uh, Isaac over Ishmael. Verse eight, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise. And this naming are counted as offspring. In other words, it doesn't matter who our parents are, if they're believers or not, if they're descendants of Abraham or not. What makes us children of God is God's naming of us, his choosing of us, just as he chose Isaac over Ishmael. And then Paul continues, verse nine. For this is what the promise said. And here he's talking about the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 18, 10. 
About this time next year, do you remember this story where Abraham and Sarah were waiting for a son and they kept waiting and waiting, but God gave this promise? Here's what the promise was. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Of course, he's referring to Isaac. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, so now Paul's looking at multiple generations here, though they, the twins, were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, again, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older, Esau, shall serve the younger, Jacob. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So here, Paul uses Jacob and Esau as an example to show that God has always chosen to save people in the exact same way, not according to lineage, for Jacob and Esau both had the exact same parents, and not according to works, for God chose Jacob before either of them were born and had done nothing either good or bad, but rather according to God's naming, choosing, electing, calling of us. And of course, we know salvation is by grace through faith, Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, but you see this election precedes, comes before salvation. It's God's sovereign choosing of people to be saved before they are saved. And no one would be saved otherwise because Ephesians chapter two verse one tells us that by nature we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins and would never choose to follow God if God didn't first choose to sovereignly act to effectually save us and move our hearts to follow him. And so to bring this all back to Malachi, the point God is making in this defense of his love where he uses Jacob and Esau as an example is this. Judeans, you know that I have loved you because while I passed over other sinners and allowed them to just continue in their rebellion and wickedness, I chose you. I saved you. I set my love and affection on you in a special way. You are children of the promise, children of divine election, children of spiritual adoption, children not of wrath and the seed of the serpent, but children of grace, seed of the Savior, children of your heavenly Father who has loved you even at your worst. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from my love because I, the Lord, have chosen you. And then God continues in verses three B through five of Malachi chapter one. 
I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And what exactly is the point of all this? How exactly is this supposed to melt the Judeans' hearts over the love of God for them? Well, I think that in revealing the eventual downfall and destruction of Edom, who really represents all of wicked humanity, all of fallen, unredeemed humanity in their sin, God is trying to melt the Judeans' hearts as they recognize afresh the sovereign grace and mercy that has found them, though they are no more deserving of it than Edom. They are just as guilty of sin as anyone else. Uh, It's like this, and I use this analogy often. If by nature we all sit on death row, because our lifetime of sinning against the holy God makes us all deserving of death, but then God chooses to save some people and take them off death row by his grace. Does that not melt in the hearts of the redeemed as they see that were it not for the sovereign electing grace of God, they never would have been freed to follow him and would have just justly perished in their sins? God is trying to melt the Judeans' hearts by reminding them that they've been found by his special, sovereign, electing love, a unique love that a father has for his children and that a husband has for his bride. And of course, this raises a bunch of questions which we won't be able to get to to this morning, uh, though Paul answers some of them later in Romans chapter nine. Um, But at least one question that deserves to be answered here this morning is this. What does it mean that God hated Esau? Doesn't God hate the sin but love the sinner, as Gandhi once remarked? Well, It's interesting that we we find something of a paradox in scripture because there are several passages talking about God's love for all his creation, which certainly includes people, but there are several passages in scripture talking about God's hatred of sin and wickedness and those who do evil, people themselves. And something that helped me reconcile these two things was an article I read titled God's Love and God's Wrath by the theologian D.A. Carson and in it he writes this our problem in part is that in human experience hate and love normally abide in mutually exclusive compartments meaning they don't mix one's over here one's certainly over here and then he continues love drives hate out or hate drives love out. But this is not the way it is with God. God's hatred is not a ruthless blind rage, 
However emotional it may be, it is an entirely reasonable and willed response to offenses against his holiness. At the same time, his love wells up amidst his perfections and is not generated by the loveliness of the loved. Hear that? Thus, there is nothing intrinsically impossible about hate and love being directed toward the same individual or people at once. In other words, though impossible for us, it's entirely possible for God to love and hate perfectly in a holy and righteous way and in a way that they both exist simultaneously. And so, there is a general way in which God loves all people. He truly does love all people. But it's also true that God hates the wicked. Scripture says that. And his holiness demands it. His goodness demands it. Now, this is very important. We have to remember the second thing that God's declaration of love revealed to us about God. And that was that God's disposition toward his people, God's disposition toward his people is always one of love. That's why God's hatred of Esau is juxtaposed with God's love for Jacob, okay? And this raises another question that we have to answer this morning, that is, how exactly can the just and holy God save some sinners choose to save some sinners in this special way in which he does not hate them anymore? How exactly can the just and holy God take some sinners off death row and remember their sins no more? How can the just and holy God elect some sinners to salvation? And Ephesians chapter one, verses three through six gives us the answer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved in Christ. So the reason the just and holy God can elect some sinners to salvation and take some sinners off death row where he remembers their sin no more and loves some sinners in this special way in which he does not hate them anymore is because of Jesus the Savior who bore in his body on the cross all of the wrath and hatred of God toward his people and died in their place, carried out their death sentences that they might walk free and forgiven and fiercely loved forever. And so we see in Malachi's first wake-up call, God's love declared, I have loved you. And God's love debated, how have you loved us? And then the most interesting and totally unexpected defense of God's love is not Esau, Jacob's brother. And in closing, I thought of three
three applications for us which correspond to this declaration, debating, and defense of God's love. And I'll pose them first in the form of a question. So the first question is, how should we respond to this declaration of God's love? How should we respond to this declaration of God's love? And I think that when we consider the historical context and how this declaration of love comes as God's response to the people's doubting and begrudgery and apathy and transgression and stinginess and grumbling, this tells us that we must be overcome by such wondrous love that our hearts melt within us, leading us to repentance and freeing us from the futile task of trying to earn God's love. Let me say that one more time. We must be overcome by such wondrous love that our hearts melt within us, leading us to repentance and freeing us from the futile task of trying to earn God's love. And I want to focus in on this second part of the application. So just think about this with me. If God's disposition toward his people and his response to his people is always one of love, no matter what, then this frees us from the burdensome and anxiety-filling thing that happens when we're always wondering what God really thinks of us and if we're ever measuring up, right? And here's the truth. When we do this, when we're in this weird video game-like mindset where we're constantly thinking that we're either earning or losing points with God, one of two things will happen. Either we'll try really, really hard to keep all of God's commands, you know, sweating and white-knuckling it, and we'll succeed and we'll be puffed up thinking, man, God must really love me or we'll try really, really hard to keep God's commands, sweating, white-knuckling it, and we'll fail, and we'll just be destroyed, thinking, how could God possibly love someone like me? One way leads to deadly pride, and the other leads to deadly despair. And in both cases, who is our attention being fixed on the entire time? ourselves, ourselves, and what a miserable Christian life if all of it is spent not gazing upon the beauty and majesty of God, but only ever upon our own sweaty, exhausted, and wretched faces. Here's the secret. Here's the thing that really frees us from the futile task of trying to earn God's love. It's in coming to fully understand the gospel, which tells us that in Jesus, the covenantal and steadfast love of God finds the unlovable. And in Jesus, the righteousness of God, that awesome, holy, perfect righteousness of God is credited to the unrighteous. And in Jesus, the 
splendorous, majestic beauty of God covers every ugly deformity of heart and flesh such that God the Father now looks upon his elect with the same love with which he loves his son because we are now in his son, in Christ, and Christ is in us by the Holy Spirit. And so if you today, Christian, have been bound to the futile task of trying to earn God's love, look to Jesus, see that great thing that he has accomplished on your behalf, see the love of the Father in sending him to die in your place, to hide you in him, Colossians 3.3 says, and repent of your sin, and trust in Jesus alone to present you lovable and righteous and beautiful before the Father who loves you deeply and endlessly. We must be overcome by such wondrous love that our hearts melt within us, leading us to repentance and freeing us from the futile task of trying to earn God's love. And the second question is, how should we respond to this debating of God's love? How should we respond to this debating of God's love? Well, if we go back to the idea that the Judeans were unable to see the love of God because they were coming to God with their preconceived ideas about what things would look like if he truly loved them, this tells us that we must measure the love of God by the word of God and not by the minds of men. We must measure the love of God by the word of God and not by the minds of men. And instead of looking at all the ways scripture tells us how God loves us, which is certainly something I would commend to you to do, I just wanna point out here that there is a serious problem in our culture, and this may sound counterintuitive at first, but that problem is that virtually everyone who believes in the existence of God religious or irreligious, believes that he is loving. And here's why that is such a problem. Because that assumption is often not grounded in scripture, but is grounded in their own preconceived ideas about what they think, what they hope God would be like. And this is proven by the fact that many people who believe that God exists and believe that God is loving do not believe in all of his other attributes which scripture reveals to us, like his holiness and his absolute sovereignty and his justice and his wrath. And this most often sentimental, nice old man up in the sky, you know, Santa Claus type of view of God and his love just breeds endless misconceptions about what he's really like endless misconceptions about what he's really like, what his love is really like. And my fear is that as biblical literacy declines in the Christian church today, that more and more Christians will find that their views of God are actually from the minds of men and not from the word of God. 
And it's not just a terrible thing that our minds might be filled with heretical views about God, but it's, it's terrible that we might miss out on coming to truly understand how glorious and awesome the real God of Scripture is if indeed the voices of the culture are speaking louder in our ears than the voice of God. We must measure the love of God by the word of God and not by the minds of men. And then lastly, the third question is, how should we respond to this defense of God's love? How should we respond to this defense of God's love? And I thought about this one for quite a while and I was just thinking about the fact that if God had instead responded to the people's debating by just lavishing upon them mountains and mountains of material blessings, I'm pretty confident that many of them would have immediately felt so loved by God, which would have ultimately revealed who their true God was all along the thing they were really chasing after and hoping in all along. Stuff, things, possessions, prosperity, the blessings themselves, but not the one from whom all blessings flow. So what I see here in Malachi is a God who loves his people enough to not just let himself become a means to some other end they might have in mind. And to not just appeal to the greed within their hearts, but rather to appeal to something glorious, to melt away that greed from their hearts. So I think the application here is this. We must surrender to the reality that God wants to teach us deeper and more glorious things than we may expect. Amen, we must surrender to the reality that God wants to teach us deeper and more glorious things than we may expect. God wants to bless us in ways that money and pleasures and stuff can't. And God wants to give us a hope that is not just here today but gone tomorrow like so many things. And God wants to give us a love that is greater than all the love we've ever known. And you know, sometimes these blessings, this hope, this love doesn't always look like what we expected, but truly, when it finds us, we discover that it was much better than we expected. And God uses those things to change us and to give us more holy and perfect expectations. So we must surrender to the reality that God wants to teach us deeper and more glorious things than we may expect. And I'll just end with this. At the beginning of the sermon, I told you a little bit about the story of Christian and his companion, Hopeful who became imprisoned in Doubting Castle's dark and nasty dungeon. But I didn't tell you all the story. I didn't tell you how they made their miraculous uh, escape. And it's not anything you would expect. 
What happened is that they were imprisoned on a Wednesday. But then very early in the morning on Sunday, Christian suddenly realized that he had a key in his pocket, his chest pocket, all along. And this key was called promise. And with it, he and Hopeful were able to open every door in Doubting Castle and escape. And my prayer is that if there is anyone here this morning who is feeling similarly imprisoned by doubt, doubt over God's love, doubt over God's promises, whatever that doubt may be, my prayer is that Malachi's first wake-up call would be a wonderful and glorious and heart-melting word for you this morning that you will see the great love with which God the Father has loved you in Christ in, in sovereignly electing you, setting that kind of love on you. And that that would cause you to trust in his promises and that as a result you would find every dungeon door of doubt opening for you. That you might walk fearlessly and free out of that place in his love. Amen. Will you stand with me to pray? Oh Lord, make our minds to grasp these wonderful, glorious, heart-melting truths that before the world began in love, you predestined us, your people, for adoption to yourself as sons while we were spiritual orphans without a father. That while we were yet guilty, guilty and filthy sinners, you sent your beautiful son to sweat and suffer and die in our place. What tongue can fully tell of the great love with which you have loved us and continue to love us though you catch us doubting and begrudging and transgressing and much, much more. O Lord, you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We ask, please, Lord, please hide this word in our hearts today as we are hidden in your Son. And may this word move us to endless praise for your glory alone. Amen. Amen. May we all go in the grace of God.